Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, interview episode on the Seleucid Empire with Dr. Kyle Erickson. Hello, everyone. Today with me, I have Dr. Kyle Erickson, Assistant Dean of Humanities and Performing Arts at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. Dr. Erickson is a specialist in the Hellenistic period, particularly the Seleucid Empire, with a focus on numismatics, divine iconography, and the relationship they play in Hellenistic kingship. Recently, Dr. Erickson has published a number of papers and works, such as The Early Seleucids, Their Gods, and Their Coins, and served as the editor and contributor for The Seleucid Empire, 281-222 BC, War Within the Family. First off, I'd like to say thank you for taking the time to be on the show. So, Dr. Erickson, would you like to give a bit of a background for your career and how you became so interested in the Seleucid Empire and the Hellenistic period in general? Yep. So, I came out of, as an undergraduate, I was always interested in Alexander. And most universities, when they do Greek history, um, they don't cover the Hellenistic period at all. Um, That's changing slightly in the last 20 years. But it's a difficult period to teach, as I've discovered throughout my career. So when I looked to do my master's and my PhD, I was looking, trying to look at the things that came after Alexander and how do you talk about them and who's talking about them. And the choices really are the Antigonid, the Ptolemies, and the Seleucids. And when I started, very few people were talking about the Seleucids, which made it far more interesting. So the fact that they've got a big empire with some difficult source material makes it really interesting to look at the nuances and the fact that the English-speaking scholarship hasn't included them for the last 50 years or so. And much more of the focus has been on Egypt for good reasons. So I did a PhD in Exeter with Daniel Ogden and Stephen Mitchell, both of whom have written sort of extensively both about Hellenistic dynasties and Asia Minor and figured I would work on Asia Minor, and slowly got sucked further and further eastwards as the material gets more and more diverse and in some ways I think more and more interesting. At the time of our discussion, we have covered the Seleucid Empire through the reigns of Seleucus and Antiochus I in the podcast. Compared to their contemporaries, we seem to have a very limited body of literary evidence documenting the early years of Seleucid rule, whether in regards to a strict chronological narrative or figuring out their internal policies. Are there any particular challenges that are faced when researching them versus their rivals the Ptolemies or the Antigonids, such as the evidence type and variety, or lack thereof? There are some serious issues with particularly the literary evidence for the early Seleucid period. You've got Evidence in the remaining parts of Diodorus, um, but Diodorus tends to be interested in the western part of Alexander's foreign empire. So all of the running around that Seleucus does in the east um, largely didn't exist in Diodorus, and that creates a challenge. And I think, as your podcast does a really good job of, is covering some of the problems with the lack of an overarching narrative for the Hellenistic period. We have one for classical Greece through Thucydides and Xenophon, and we get ones in Rome through Livy and others. But there isn't a sort of big Greek historian or big Roman historian who covers the whole of the Hellenistic period. So everything winds up needing to be pieced together from various places. Now, this makes, I think, the Seleucids far more interesting it comes with a unique set of challenges. Ptolemies mostly control 
Egypt um, and bits of the coast of Asia Minor and the islands. So they have very, very traditional focus on Egypt and a source material based in Egypt and a sort of very Greek one on the islands. And the Antigonids, of course, taking Macedon, have a very traditional Greek source base. There's the Seleucids ruling Bactrians, Iranians, Sogdians, um, Syrians. The source material varies depending on which region you're looking at. Asia Minor gives us a good picture of the Seleucids, but of course they don't always control it. Um, whereas the Babylonian source material or say the Iranian source material can give us a very different picture. So for figuring out early Seleucid power, it's a variety of types of evidence, but also a variety of types of regional variation. And that stretches throughout the Seleucid Empire from the beginning to the end. As you get towards the end of the Seleucid Empire, the Jewish sources become far more prominent. So you get very, very interesting combinations of what the Seleucids are doing at any particular point in time in any particular region, but trying to figure out how that all matches together can be a particular challenge. With reference to coinage, and having personally read a number of works by Professor Frank Lee Holt in the last year, such as Thundering Zeus, how has the role of numismatics played in the reconstruction of the inner workings of the Seleucid Empire? What do coins tell us that other sources do not? I'm glad you've been reading his books. Uh, I think he's the best sort of numismatic historian um, in, in using coins to reconstruct empires. And coins are, are difficult. Um, one of the things I'm working on is how we can use coins to write biographies of, of leaders. The wonderful thing about coins is they're contemporary. They're produced by the state, at least to, to a major extent. And they're repetitive across the entire empire, at least for the silver and gold coiners of the Seleucids. So it gives us a very good idea of how the Seleucids wish to present themselves, both on an international stage and within their own empire. The problem with the Seleucids and their variety of different types of regional sources is coins the sort of overview. You get the, the bull um, bronze coinage of Seleucus I, which he produces across the entire empire. And of course, during the reign of Antiochus I, he introduces Apollo on the reverse of Seleucid coins, and that seems to be consistent across the empire. So you get coinage is the only material evidence that we have that gives us a sense of the Seleucid Empire as an imperial whole. That empire is actually connected in a way that's might be beyond just the kings. They're using the same types of money, um, and they're reflecting the same types of ideology throughout the empire. The other thing coinage is wonderful for, um, of course, is studying trade and economics, um, which is also really important in developing our picture of what the early Seleucids are doing and where people are moving, um, particularly the military, as coinage seems to follow the military, both at Minsk and in its distribution. And finally, um, it's wonderful at working out who is who in the Seleucid Empire. Um, the Seleucids, beginning um, in the reign of Antiochus I, um, start putting the living king on, on their coinage. And that gives us an idea of, in fact, who the living king is um, and when they're ruling. This is less problematic early in the Seleucid Empire, when you happen to have one king at a time, or two joint kings at a time. But particularly in the late Seleucid Empire, where you have the kingdom breaking down and fighting each other, um, some of the only ways you can reconstruct the chronology of 
late Seleucid Syria um, is through the coinage. We just don't have the literary sources to figure out who's in charge of what city when. Coins are sort of the only way to reconstruct that. The final thing, and the thing that I think is most interesting about coinage, and what I've written most about on, is that presentation of the ruling family through coinage. We don't have a huge number of inscriptions um, from the Seleucid royal house. Most of them come in interactions with cities, um, nor do we have sort of any of the other material that might have survived. We have few temples, we have few major building projects of the Seleucids, although we know we, they did them. So the way that we can look at the Seleucid presentation of themselves um, throughout their empire is through coinage. The Seleucids were in control of the vast majority of Alexander's Asian satrapies, which is an enormous stretch of territory full of an incredibly diverse collection of peoples, Persians, Bactrians, and various Aramaic-speaking peoples, who had a very rich and lengthy tradition of the notions of rulership. What were some of the strategies or policies of the early Seleucids that allowed them to project or communicate a Macedonian-styled one upon the political landscape, besides the obvious requirements like military power? Is there any evidence of mediation or cultural overtures on the behalf of the Seleucids to make their reign more palatable to the non-Greco-Macedonian populations? This, is, this, this has been one of the more interesting questions, at least in my mind, of the last 30 years in Seleucid studies, is that balance between what is Greco-Macedonian and what is non-Greco-Macedonian. Now, I've I'm come firmly down on the side of the Seleucids were interested in the diverse collection of peoples that they ruled, that they drew power from not just their Greco-Macedonian population, although that served as the sort of backbone of their military. But I believe they brought Iranians in, that they brought Bactrians in, and that they brought Babylonians in particular into their empire and started to use them. That being said, at the same time, they seem to develop a Macedonian-style political agenda that seems to be defined by the royal family's relationship with the Greek gods, but particularly the god Apollo. And we can see some of this in the names of officials. Um, the Seleucids have very few officials who don't have Greek names. Now, of course, there are questions of whether or not officials take Greek names when they become officials, and we have some evidence for this, like Anabulat Kephalon um, in Uruk in the 3rd century. So, at a superficial level, I think the Seleucids look very Greco-Macedonian, but I think as we scratch below the surface of that, we can see how that superstructure of Macedonianness can be used in other ways by the Seleucids to make their reign more palpable to the non-Greco-Macedonians. So the thrust of um, these, the Gosnian coins was that even though we can think of Apollo, and I think in Nietzsche's term is, as the most Greek of the Greek gods, I think actually Apollo speaks to various regions of the Seleucid Empire in different ways, but expressing that same message that the Seleucids are now the power in charge. So if let's go through what I think are sort of four of the major regions for Seleucid power, um, Asia Minor, Syria, Babylon, um, and the Iranians. I think Apollo interpreted very differently um, in all of those places. So in Asia Minor, where there's a very strong history and cultural relationship between the Greeks um, and Apollo in particular, um, so the oracle at Didyma, but also a large number of um, shrines to Apollo, particularly along the coast. 
Apollo plays very well into a very traditional relationship between the king and the gods. In Babylon, um, I think, and we can see the little bit in Pliny, um, in the inscriptions that Antiochus sets up at Borsippa, uh, that there's an interaction between Apollo and the local god Nabu. Um, and Nabu was the scribal god, he, the god of prophecy, the son of the god Marduk. So it fits a lot of the same synchronistic elements that you see in Apollo. And he seems to be particularly patronized by Antiochus I at about the same time that Antiochus I is starting to implement the Apollo iconography across the entire empire. So I think you can see um, in the Borsippus cylinder, and there are some good papers by Paul Cosman, uh, by Catherine Stevens, looking at how the Seleucids are using Babylonian and a com combination of Macedonian language to create this new Seleucid sort of Babylonian milieu, which the Seleucids sit on top of, but the Babylonians can participate in. And it's not just a structural divide in the same way that people perceived Seleucids interacted um, in the Near East. And then for Iran, you have a long history of the king as archer. And you can see this on Darius's coinage, Dariax, where the king is often represented as the archer par excellence. And of course, in the Eastern Seleucid Empire, Apollo is almost always represented with a bow, including on Seleucid coinage. And you can see how the image of Apollo reflects some of the Achaemenid imagery of kingship. And I think it's interesting that when the Parthians start to adopt coinage, they adopt the Seleucid model. But of course, the figure that they put on instead of Apollo appears to be the figure of the king. And I think this is not a Parthian reinterpretation of something they didn't understand, but an understanding in the Iranian and the upper satrapies that the picture on the reverse of the coinage was the king. And that, that combination is what drives through the coinage. Syria is a bit more complicated, um, and it shares a whole bunch of different cultural contexts, um, some of which is the Nabu context, some of which is the Greek Apollo context, and some of this is gods like Recep, um, who are also syncretized with Apollo and again, sky gods. So I think the Seleucids, in the things that we can see, in particular coinage, are showing this evidence of mediation of cultural, culturally relevant symbolism that also at the same time is Seleucid power and Seleucidness within a sort of Greco-Macedonian framework. And the problem of not having a whole host of other literary sources or other cultural material is we can't see the other ways in which the Seleucids are making these cultural overtones. They're clearly evident the Seleucids seem to adopt the movement patterns of the Achaemenid kings, and they're probably adopting some of the same ceremonial rituals and also some of the same architectural styles as the Achaemenids. So you do see in the non-Greek sources, this evidence of the Seleucids representing power within sort of traditional power frameworks and absorbing some of the cultural milieu that they've adopted. But I think as some certain recent studies um, like Rolf Strutman's and David Ingalls have also shown that the Seleucids aren't just adopting a Babylonian ideology of kingship or a ideology of kingship, but they're taking these ideologies 
along with the background that develops out of Alexander, and they're developing something new and something seleucid um, that melds many of these cultures together. When reading between the lines of Diodorus Siculus, Plutarch, and Appian, it is pretty amazing that Seleucus starts out as this relatively minor background character in the Wars of the Diadochoi, and ends up controlling the largest portion out of all the successors. Did Seleucus's, and by extension, the rest of the Seleucid dynasty's attitude or treatment towards their subjects differ vastly from contemporary Hellenistic powers, and if so, do you believe it gave an advantage over their rivals? So, it is... Seleucus is in some ways the most impressive of Alexander's successors in that he sort of has to go the farthest in developing his own political power. And I think his attitude and treatment of Babylon in particular must play a key role in this. Now, I'm not one of those people who think that he holds on to his wife Apame um, for the entirety of her life purely for political grit gain because he wants connections to the East. He spends too long after marriage not actually having any connections to the East for that to make sense. But I think being one of the successors who keeps the bride that he got um, at Alexander's weddings from Susa gave him some legitimacy in the East. In comparison to his rivals, that's a more interesting question. There were certainly some of Alexander's generals who were extremely hostile to the people that they conquered, and that they believed that they should not be incorporated in meaningful ways into their administrative structures. And I think particularly Antigonus and Demetrius represent some of that faction against Seleucus. And I think one of the reasons that Seleucus is successful, particularly against Antigonus and Demetrius, is their sort of dismissal of Babylon and Babylonian concerns, which allows Seleucus on his return to sort of redevelop the connections that he had established as governor and use laws against Antigonus and the generals that Antigonus sets. But it doesn't seem that Seleucus is unique in having done that. So Pukestos and Python, when they're sat in satraps in the east, they seem to be adopting Persian practices and Persian dress. And Ptolemy certainly seems to be making overtures in Egypt. Um, he's producing inscriptions that are multilingual, um, and he seems to be courting the traditional priesthood. So I don't think any of the successors are particularly incompetent in the ways in which they act acted within local power structures, but I think Seleucus did something that managed to secure support for him in Babylon in a way that allows him to reestablish power. He seems to be extremely good at taking advantage of vacuums and convincing his rivals um, to side with him. And he seems to be, have been a sort of brilliant military commander, which seems to be giving him a positive examples as well. That being said... I do think the attitude that Seleucus adopts and the fact that he remains married to Apame and keeps her fairly prominent within his family structures um, does say something about the dynasty, and it gives the dynasty a longer-lasting connection to the places that they rule, which the other dynasties seem to askew. So if it's true that Cleopatra is the first of the Ptolemies to learn native Egyptian and, and use it, I'm not sure that's necessarily as true within the Seleucid house. The Seleucids marry far more into the Pontic dynasties, into the old Iranian houses, um, than the Ptolemies do in Egypt. 
and I've often wondered whether or not Apame's taught her young son Antiochus um, her native language. It wouldn't be surprising. And that constant interaction between the Seleucids and the old Iranian populations seems to also give them a a sort of sense of stability early on, even while they drew on largely Greco-Macedonian tactics um, and possibly populations um, for their military bit. So it's that balance of utilizing local populations, being able to exploit local grievances that Seleucus seems to do so well, and um, seems to help him, that people like Demetrius and Antigonus seem to fail to do. In one of your recent papers, you discussed the idea of an early form of a Seleucid royal cult. Royal cults and the notions of divine or semi-divine kingship in the Hellenistic period have been significantly reassessed in the last few years. So I'm interested in your take on what role it played in Seleucid rulership. So I've been really interested in the representation of the king as divine, as the ultimate expression of royal prerogative and royal power. Now, the discussions around this have moved from it's an entirely an Eastern idea to it's an entirely Greek idea. And I'm, again, somewhere in the middle. And I think the solutions are developing a notion that develops very slowly and sort of with stops and starts throughout the early part of solution rule, where they're attempting to exploit benefits that being seen as divine brings them within various local contexts. And some of this, I think, is possibly driven by misinterpretations of Achaemenid precedents. Um, I don't think the Achaemenid kings were worshipped as divine, but I certainly believe that Greeks thought they were, and that Seleucus may have thought that this tapped into something um, in the East, although our evidence for Seleucid royal cult in the East is particularly limited. The other useful thing that sort of ruler cults do, particularly with Greek cities, is it gives the kings power outside the normal political structures and allows them to interact with a city and impose their will without necessarily disrupting the normal political functionings of the Greek polis. And so Seleucid ruler cult sort of operates on a number of levels. And I think the Seleucids play with this in, in various ways. I don't think they ever fully successfully establish the type of cult that you get in the Ptolemaic Empire. Instead, I think, is you get one that is often driven by civic bodies that are attempting to sort out relationship with the king within a Greek polis mentality, with a king with a large army outside their gates, as well as the king sitting away in his palace and separate from the population. And both of those aspects of kingship lead Seleucids to find that divine, semi-divine, children of divine paradigm useful to shift between different power structures um, at different levels. With Egypt and the Ptolemies, you could arguably draw a very direct connection between the Ptolemaic cult and the nature of pharaonic rule. Is there such a comparison that could be made between the Seleucids and the native ideas of rulership under their dominion? There isn't really. 
there isn't a real tradition of divine kingship in Mesopotamia. It occurs occasionally, and it does seem the Seleucids pay particular attention to kings like Namat-Sin or Nebuchadnezzar, um, who, who have these predilections towards their own divinity. But there isn't that long tradition of king is son of god who will become divine that you get in egypt that the ptolemies really successfully tapped into that being said i think the seleucids are also constantly looking across at the ptolemies and seeing what the ptolemies are doing and experimenting with ways of adopting ptolemaic practices within their own empire and doing so in different ways so asia minor um seemed to readily adopt um divine kingship for various people and for various Seleucid kings. And lots of the evidence seems to come out of this interaction between Seleucid kings or the Ptolemaic kings or Lysimachus, I mean, individual cities in Asia Minor. And that might be something to do with native ideas of rulership, both in Greek populations and non-Greek populations, and that divide between internal central politics, the politics of the polis, and this now outside factor of these new massive empires which dwarf the resources of any individual city. Syria, neither does it seem to have a native idea of a divine king in the same way as you get in Egypt. Iran is the complicated one. Iranian kingship does seem to have connections to the divine in various ways but not in that same straightforward structural relationship that the Ptolemies developed with Pharaonic culture, which leads to the very specific notion of Ptolemaic cult and how Ptolemaic cult is both represented in inscriptions but also in ritual practice. The interesting thing is we seem to have very little evidence for the ritual practice for the Seleucids, whereas we have far more for the Ptolemies, which really does suggest that they're doing slightly different things in terms of their relationship with cults for themselves. As much as I feel that many of these questions have been spurred on by doing comparisons between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, one thing to note is the role of women in the royal household. Women like Berenike I and II and Arsinoe II seem to play major roles in the Ptolemaic narrative, while Seleucus' wife Apama and later Antiochus' wife Stratonike seem to have uh, very limited appearances in comparison. Do you think that this is related to the limited amount of evidence we have on Seleucid rule, or do you think that Seleucid royal women had a smaller role to play in the politics of the kingdom? Let's assume this is before the likes of Cleopatra Thea, so the earlier period of Seleucid history. I think this is, again, one of those very difficult questions that often goes back to what we're missing out of Seleucid source material. So the Ptolemaic women seem to play very significant roles um, and are very prominent in Ptolemaic ideology. Um, Berenike I um, and particularly Arsene II dominate lots of the iconography of their husbands. And we really don't see that in the same way um, with the early Seleucids. We do get cities named after um, Seleucid women, so they are prominent in that way. But we don't have a coin of a Seleucid woman until probably Laodice, the wife of Antiochus IV slash Seleucus III. So for the first half of the Seleucid rule, women aren't appearing on coinage, whereas they are in the Ptolemaic Empire. That being said, it does seem that these women do play particular roles in the course of their husband. So we have 
the inscription Iditima 480 um, from Miletus, which a Milesian official sets up a dedication to Apami for the support that she's giving the military back in the Eastern Satrapies. So she's clearly playing a political role within her home territory, and it's one that seems to be connected to the military. So she does clearly have influence, but we see it only in this singular inscription. Stratonice is interesting, um, particularly given her family connections. She is connected to sort of every major player of the early Hellenistic world, but she doesn't appear greatly in her own right, sort of anywhere. There are interesting stories about her. She's probably the queen in the story that Lucian gives us in his Syrian goddess about Seleucus's wife and the construction of the temple. Um, for the Syrian goddess. So she's probably involved in things like that. And we see her giving dedications to cities. And we see some later Seleucid women do this. So Laodice, wife of Antiochus III, gives dedications to Teos in conjunction with her husband. So we do see this pattern occasionally occurring of husbands and wives giving grants to cities, giving benefactions, although they seem more gender delineated than some of the ones that we see in the Ptolemaic Empire. So I think it's this balance between a lack of source material, but they seem to also carry out more typically female roles than particularly some of the early Ptolemaic queens and princesses do. They seem to be visible, but at the same time, less directly involved in politics than, say, Arsenio II. That being said, I think Stratonike and Antiochus, following their wedding, go on a tour of the upper satrapies together, and I think she's equally prominent with him there. But we just only have very spotty evidence for what that's doing there. I think it's coins that are even diff- more difficult to interpret an image of Apollo and Artemis. I, I think it's a pairing of the king and the queen, in part because we see hints of that in Pliny and elsewhere. In some ways, the Seleucids are very conservative in their presentation of themselves and their family in a way that the Ptolemies really aren't. So it's that combination between the types of evidence that we do have are very formal within the Seleucid Empire, but also this combination of a, probably a narrow role for the Seleucid women before sort of the end of the dynasty, where particularly Cleopatra plays massively outsized role. Now, I could drag out our discussion and bombard you with an endless series of questions on the Seleucids that I have had, but I believe that this would be a great place to close our conversation. Once again, I appreciate you taking the time to come onto the show. And is there anything you'd wish to promote, such as future work or any links for an audience member to find out more about your research? Very slowly, I'm working on a history of the Seleucid Empire, which will hopefully place the now somewhat outdated Bavan's House of Seleucus for English, hopefully in the next year and a half or so but thank you for the opportunity to do this um this was good fun fantastic well once again thank you very much and i look forward to reading more of your upcoming work in the meanwhile i hope you all enjoyed our discussion on the seleucids and if you want to hear more content like this feel free to subscribe on the platform of your choice leave a review or visit my website at hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com to check out more interviews and my episodes on the seleucid empire along with a host of other useful information so Until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.